Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Good evening and welcome. This is Tell Me Everything. So good to be with you. I'm John Fugelsang. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight. Thea Harper and I are coming to you live from uh, high atop the Howard Stern Tower, 432 floors above Gotham. We are live in a very empty building tonight. Chris Hauselt, our heroic executive producer, runs this whole thing remotely from South Carolina. It's great to have you with us. A couple of, couple of bits of business we got to get to. We're going to be going to Chicago in two weeks. Saturday the 24th, I think it is. Go to sexyliberal.com for that. And then the big one. The big show in L.A. at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills, right there on Wilshire by La Cienega. You know it. Uh, that's going to be a huge show with some very special guests. I don't know if I'm allowed to mention. We have wonderful Congress people joining us, but I don't think I can say their names yet. But please come join us either in Chicago or L.A. OK, this week on the show, it just keeps on getting better, man. You know, we got a town hall with Ken Burns. His amazing new film is about America and the Holocaust. Ken has done our show for the last two movies he's done. This is the first time he's coming in to do the show in studio. We're going to do a town hall with an audience here at SiriusXM. It's going to be really great. And it's only, I think, the second or third town hall I've done for this company since uh, the pandemic began. So don't miss that. Also, Julian Lennon returns to our show this week. He has a new album out. I am so excited to welcome that beautiful, evolved, wonderful guy. Back to our show. You won't want to miss it. In the meantime, all night long, we're going to be taking your calls. We're going to try something different tonight. No comics in the studio. It's just going to be me and Thea and you guys. Um, later in the show, Gaia Vince will be joining us. I'm a big fan of hers. She's a terrific journalist. And her new book is, well, look, there's a lot of climate change books coming out. Hers is a book that, I don't know, I, I, I almost feel awkward saying this, but I don't read a lot of hopeful books about the climate crisis. I don't read a lot of books about what's going on with the science that leaves me feeling like, oh, we're all going to make it through here. Her book is called Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. Her take is very interesting. Instead of focusing on, oh my God, the disaster that's going to happen from 1.5 billion humans having to relocate due to climate change, her take's different. It's, oh my God, look at the opportunity we're going to have for so many countries when 1.5 billion humans migrate. It's really, really fascinating. Not a feel-good book, but it's the most hopeful book I've read about what we're all going to be facing for the rest of our lives. All right, let's do a show. 866-997-4748. So glad you guys are here. This just in, Queen Elizabeth is still dead. Yes, I don't know if you checked the news, but apparently uh, it's it's getting a lot of coverage. And I was sitting with Thea before saying, honestly, whether you're a fan of the monarchy, whether you can't stand the monarchy, it felt like a very significant day and it feels like a very significant death. We were talking about, is this the most famous person in the world? 
who just died. I mean, think about it. I, you know, for those of us who are cynical about royal family matters, I, I forget not just your mom and your mom's friends and your aunts and grandmas who care about the royal family. But I mean, who's more famous than Queen Elizabeth? I, Madonna? I, I mean, Beyonce? I don't think Paul McCartney, she was queen when he was in grammar school. I, I honestly, I mean, the the Pope, just those, not even his name. She's probably more famous than Francis. And I had a very interesting day yesterday because I told a few jokes and I made a few points about her. And I learned violently that unless you completely revere the queen and worship everything she ever did, or if you despise her and think she is a racist byproduct of colonialism and an oppressor, well, there was nowhere for you in the social media universe. It was real binary. And it was interesting seeing how many people on the right and the left agreed about certain things. Just to frame it, she was born in 1926, right in the middle of the three Republican presidents in a row who destroyed our economy before the Great Depression. Calvin Coolidge was our president. Joseph Stalin had just taken control in the USSR. Queen Elizabeth was born two years after the death of Lenin. The year she was born was the year that Stalin died. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, the year she assumed the British throne, 1953. That's the same year Stalin died. America elected Eisenhower the year she be, I mean, swore in Eisenhower, the year she was uh, assuming the throne. Pierce Brosnan was born. That's, that's how old she, her reign has been. Gas cost three cents per gallon in the UK the year that she ascended to the throne. I mean, when she was born, it was her grandfather who was the king, George V. Her first cousin was Nicholas II, who was czar. Another one of her cousins was Kaiser Wilhelm. It's important to remember, these Brits are actually inbred Germans. She was 26 years old when Stalin died. She was 35 when the Soviets sent the first human to space. She was 62 when the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan. She was 65 when the Soviet Union collapsed. She was 73 years old when Vladimir Putin came to power. And of course, she was on all the currency. A white face on all the notes, all the stamps, all the coins throughout the increasingly diversifying empire. You know, when she became queen in 53, one Briton in 200 was a person of color. Only one out of 200. As of the 2011 census, one in seven. Think about how much she changed. I mean, how much her society changed around her. And I was on News Nation earlier tonight. And they asked us to come on and tell some jokes. And it was all about Charles's speech. And, and I want to get to that. But honestly, I think the queen's greatest achievement really was um, not just that she stayed popular, but that she kept the monarchy popular. I, I mean, it's such a stupid institution. It's ridiculous. Yes, she was a decolonizer, and I will give her credit for that. I don't call her a colonizer. Over 20 African nations got their freedom from the empire during her reign. But her wealth was a byproduct of colonialism. Her family, including her charming son, Andrew, will spend the rest of their lives in incredible luxury a luxury built on pillage and looting. So I, I, for me, I can't just do the positive or the negative. I've, I've got to look at all of it. Um, that's kind of the curse of being a liberal, I guess. You got to look at the whole picture. And Charles has spent his entire life preparing for his one promotion at age 73. He is the oldest British royal to ever be crowned king or queen. We, of course, got our oldest president ever elected, who replaced the previous oldest president ever elected, and one of Charles's, King Charles III's, gotta get used to saying that, King Chuck's first official acts was naming Prince William the Prince of Wales and naming his daughter-in-law the same title his former wife Diana once enjoyed, the Princess of Wales. Now, I want to play a little bit of his speech because I thought it was beautiful. I think he made a crucial error in it, but I thought he covered a lot of the diplomatic bases. He made some announcements that I think kind of flew under the radar, um, in listening to this, I just want you to imagine that, you know, if you've ever lost your mom, if you're in that club, that this is a guy who's not just becoming king of a monarchy that doesn't have a lot of function anymore. He's not just assuming the world stage at an age when most people are retired, but this is a guy who just lost his mom. So here's his first address. Here's a little bit. King Charles III remembered the reign of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. And he talked about how Britain changed during her reign. When the Queen came to the throne, Britain 
and the world were still coping with the privations and aftermath of the Second World War, and still living by the conventions of earlier times. Mm. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms, of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud, have prospered and flourished. Our values have remained and must remain constant. Did you catch the many cultures and many faiths? There's a lot of talk that Charles, for all of his stuffiness, is a, a closet liberal. Um, I have some thoughts on that in a second, but I, I thought it was interesting and telling that he mentioned the many faiths and many cultures that now make up a much browner and a much more diverse British Empire. And so far, he's off to a good shot. He he made his first public appearance as king in front of a large crowd at Buckingham Palace earlier today. People were cheering him and singing God Save the King. Uh, he was accompanied by Queen Consort Camilla. And seeing her being enthusiastically welcomed by a British crowd is something I never thought I'd ever see. I'm old enough to remember her being the most despised woman in the world. But here is King Charles III also discussing the new life ahead for his eldest son, William, the new Prince of Wales. As my heir, William now assumes the Scottish titles, which have meant so much to me. He succeeds me as Duke of Cornwall and takes on the responsibilities for the Duchy of Cornwall, which I have undertaken for more than five decades. Today, I am proud to create him Prince of Wales, Tewusog Cymru, the country whose title I've been so greatly privileged to bear during so much of my life and duty. With Catherine beside him, our new Prince and Princess of Wales will, I know, continue to inspire and lead our national conversations, helping to bring the marginal to the center ground where vital help can be given. We had this talk earlier, Thea, have you ever heard a British person with an accent that posh? No, not at all. I mean, think about the decades of, of, of inbreeding and sheltered life away from the common rabble. I mean, and he speaks beautifully. Yeah. I, I love his, don't get me wrong, I love his accent. But holy crap, I know a lot of British people. I don't know anyone yeah. with elocution like that. Yeah, I never heard any moment of British accent like that. I, I think that's that's probably how well-bred British people spoke 150 years yeah. ago. I mean, he's grown up in such a bubble. I don't think this guy could pass for working class if he tried. I think that's why his, his first wife was so popular, because she seemed like a person of the people. Charles might care about the people, and God knows with climate change, he's fighting for them all. But when you speak like some of the Mox Brothers torment in a film. He sounds like like someone from the crown. Like Yes. He, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know that's what you're all. What, what happens to the crown now? Like, here's the deal. I, again, not my thing, right? Like my aunts down in Virginia would care about this. My, oh, my God. My, my old lady relatives in Virginia, they care so much about the royal family. I learned to all the Anne and Margaret, all that from them. You're wondering about The Crown, I know. My wife got me to watch that show. And I'll tell you something. I, I'm glad I did. It's quite good. Uh, you wouldn't think it would be that addicting, but it really is. And it really gave me some insight into how batshit crazy the institution is. And yet these people, this family of inbred Germans, they're all born into it. And they all have to serve it. Under Elizabeth, what I liked the most about her was how it went from being a concept of ruling Britain to a concept of the monarch serving Britain. But the show really shows how she was handed this incredibly insane life. Her uncle was supposed to be king. Then her father, the famous stutterer, he, he got the gig. And boy, man, Jared Harris is great as her father. I love Jared Harris. He does the show a lot and he's a wonderful guy and he comes to my stand-up show, so I'll always love him. But boy, he's so good as her father. And, you know, I find that what she did was make the monarchy make sense for her and for many people. I don't know if Charles is going to be able to do it. Now, the first two seasons were Claire Foy as a young princess, Elizabeth. Seasons three or four were Olivia Coleman as a, a more grown-up queen. As it starts moving closer to current events, you meet Diana and all that. Now we're waiting on season five and six with the great Imelda Staunton 
playing the queen. Uh, some of you might know her from Mike Lee's movie Vera Drake, which could be the best film ever made about abortion rights. But she's best known, I think, for playing uh, Dolores Umbridge in the Harry Potter movies. Well, they have stalled production due to her death, and they will uh, stall it again for her funeral. It'll be here soon enough. Don't worry. Um, here is King Charles III one more time, pledging himself in service to his subjects. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. <coughs> and wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love as I have throughout my life. Dying to know what you guys thought of this speech and of all this mishigas that's happening, you can call us live five nights a week at 866-997-4748, or if you're part of our Daywalker audience on the app, on demand, on the podcast, uh, please either call us or email us at... Uh, johnfuglesang.com or our show's Facebook page. We'd really love to know uh, what you think of this. And I just got an email from our good friend, Sam Greenfield, who's a wonderful broadcaster and radio host and comic. And he sent me this article, Four Facts About Queen Elizabeth II and the Jews. When World War II broke out, Philip volunteered for the British Navy and he fought Nazis. Princess Alice brought in for questioning because she visited the Coens, a Greek Jewish family with whom she and her husband had been friends to hide in her house. Prince Philip traveled to Jerusalem for this ceremony uh, to honor his mother, and uh, they planted a tree in his mother's memory. But her mother-in-law did help save Jews during the Holocaust, and her mother-in-law is the craziest character on the crown, a real free spirit. Also, uh, Queen Elizabeth hired a Jewish moyle to circumcise Prince Charles. She did this. I didn't know. Rabbi Jacob Snowman was a London moyle, apparently of great renown. And um, I don't think Charles knew who cut the tip of his dick off, but now we all do. Thank you. It's, it's good to know. Also, it's a Jewish custom around the world to recite a prayer on Shabbat for their government leaders. And in Britain, that means praying for the welfare of Queen Elizabeth and her family. British Jews ask God to preserve the queen in life, guard her and deliver her from all sorrow. Um, and finally, she departed from royal protocol to listen to Holocaust survivors. On the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, she hosted a group of Holocaust survivors at St. James Palace in the center of London. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs was there and said when the time came for her to leave, she stayed and stayed. One of her attendants said that he had never known her to linger so long after her scheduled departure. She gave each survivor, it was a large group, her focused, unhurried attention. She stood with each until they had finished telling her their personal story. You know, again, I'm not a big monarchy fan, but I, I, I'm rooting for Charles. I am. I, I Maybe because I'm just an uptight, nerdy, white guy with no social skills. Uh, I'm hoping he can do well somehow. He certainly must have a game plan. He's had his time. Here is the final section of his address. King Charles outlined the mourning process for Queen Elizabeth. In a little over a week's time, we will come together as a nation, as a commonwealth, and indeed a global community, to lay my beloved mother to rest. In our sorrow, let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. On behalf of all my family, I can only offer the most sincere and heartfelt thanks for your condolences and support. They mean more to me than I can ever possibly express. And to my darling Mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late Papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. 
you got me. Again, maybe it's different if you've lost your mom. But uh, that's Hamlet. He quotes there in the end, Horatio from the end of Hamlet, by the way. You know, just as I said last night, I think Queen Elizabeth would have really helped her legacy if she could have apologized for colonialism, made amends in some way, condemned it. I, I think Charles missed a chance today to help his legacy, because if there was ever a time when he could have cemented his popularity with this speech, he could have given some honorific of some kind to his late first wife, Diana. If Charles had had a medal or named something after his first official act as king, something to honor this woman. Because I'll tell you, everybody who watched that speech today was thinking of her the whole time. He was not a good husband to her. He probably never should have married her. I'm happy that Charles got to marry the woman he loved. You know, we've grown up a lot. She became the queen, Elizabeth, because we used to have a rule that the British monarchs couldn't marry divorced people. We grew beyond that. I mean, we have grown up in the fact that Charles and Camilla, their relationship, they it's a great day for adultery is what I'm trying to say. She cheated on her husband with him. He cheated on his wife with her. But gosh darn it, eventually they divorced. They got married. He still gets to be the king. They've been married for 17 long years. Adultery's having a great day. And finally, one last thing. You're wondering, what does this all mean about Kanye West? I know. Uh, Kanye finally came out and made it all about himself today. Kanye's been having the feels. And uh, I guess he's taking a break from sending threatening emails to his ex-wife's boyfriend. Um, But he wrote an Instagram early uh, yesterday that life is precious and he's releasing all grudges and leaning into the light. I guess that means he won't be sharing every private DM his ex-wife sends him about their children. I don't know. But he had two old photographs of the queen in her younger years. Um, Good for you, Kanye, for making it about yourself. And it's great that you're releasing all grudges against the people who did nothing wrong to you, that you persecuted. That's really big of you, that you're forgiving your ex-wife for having a boyfriend after your marriage ended, and you're forgiving that guy for dating her. There you go. Final thought. What struck me the most is that from now on, when I heard them singing God Save the King, my God, now anytime you hear British people say God Save the Queen, they're going to be talking about Elton. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Lewis in New York, am I giving too much leeway to the royal family? Yeah. Am, I, am I not being harsh enough? Uh, yeah. Okay, let me know. Tell me. First of all, I, 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 I want to I say the point. I stopped calling you about a year ago because you once told me to, uh, to get well because I said something about white women being the problematic coexistence of the Republican Party. You told me that your wife was white and you disrespected me without knowing that some veterans suffers from PTSD. I'm not going to tell you if I'm one of them. You're bringing up a conversation that only you remember from a year ago to rebuke me for saying what? Let me tell you something. I go off on... Hang on a second. White women who are dead inside? I I go off on them all the time on this show. Okay. No, but I'm not going to to, to, to get into a negative argument. Oh, really? Okay, because you started off on a good good foot to avoid that. Good. Okay. Well, you're not being truthful with the history of the royal family. I will be. That what do you woman, want? What am I not truthful woman, about? In 1954, 1954, she went to South Africa. She was right there being celebrated. Make no comment about what's going on with the apartheid. Absolutely. All Absolutely. That time, all that time. Another. They're a bunch of grifters. They're no difference between I agree. the Trump family. I agree. They're, they're gri- except the they're, they're grifters that the population really likes paying for. Okay. They're like state funded. Okay. They're taxpayer funded celebrities. They're a weird family. 
The only time my son, and in their history, they ever had anybody trying to get a job was Megan and Harry, who wanted to get a job to make their own contribution. And I agree. Uh, all right. And then one day they're going to have crisis about history with racism in their family. Guess who's going to rescue them? It's going to be Harry and Megan. Absolutely. I, I mean, but what does this royal family always do? Whenever, the, whenever like a popular, likable woman marries into this family, they treat her like dog shit. First Diana and now Megan. And these racists all over the European press who are so disgusted and angry at Meghan Markle, much more so than Prince Andrew, who is literally, what's that word, uh, a rapist. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm criticizing her for her faults and I'm, I'm praising her for her nice area. Yes. Go ahead. If, if you can hear me. I can hear you. Hello, sir? Yeah, go ahead. We've got a bad connection, my friend. I hear you the fine. The thing is, the man made all these comments, gave no credit about his grandchildren between Megan and Harry. He didn't mention his grandchildren. Exactly he didn't mention any of his grandchildren. He didn't mention William's grandchildren either. people who sooner or later are going to go six feet under like everyone else. Crown, no crown. Diamonds, no diamonds. They're full of shit. May she rest in peace, by the way. Okay, may she rest in peace. So, so what is the? Yeah. I'm with you. I'm not denying the fact that she didn't speak out against apartheid. Uh, I will say that she was not a colonizer; that she was the decolonizer. That's what I said. And un- during her reign was when the British Empire began to get smaller, and over 20 African nations left the United Kingdom to become okay. their own democracies. I've, I've, I'll totally condemn her for the right okay. things and praise her for the right things. Uh, being being Haitian, all right, first Black Republic. What the fuck did these people have any business occupying another person's country? And today, they're putting the, uh, the Ghanaians out in, in London. They're not welcome after their privilege. Every guy I feel the same way. I, I, I say, what the hell? Where did America get off occupying Iraq? I'm with you. And guess what? What did we get for Iraq? We spent a trillion dollars there. We didn't even get one bucket of oil recognition. Oh, we didn't get anything, but hang on. No, no, no. But Dick Cheney's company got 40 billion of our dollars, and all of the Iraqi oil was divided among four Western oil companies. It was never for us. It was always for the ruling class. This proves to you why we spend money where our interests, but as long as priorities for white people's interests. Right, but Lewis, let's bring it back to let's bring it back to what matters, and let's let's bring it back to what matters, and that's me. What did I say that was wrong? <laughs> what did I say okay. that wasn't true? Well, no. Well, first of all, I didn't want to get into arguments because I kind of admire your show. A year ago, I was speaking with you. I was making some point. I said, "Sir, the problem with the with with with, with America." Has a lot to do with white women taking the privilege, the the gains that has been by progressive. Yeah. Turn around and give it right back to this ignorant white male. You kind of all angry. You said to me, "Oh, uh, do you, my wife, my wife is white." Well, I would I, never uh, be so personal even if I knew you personally. That's but listen, yeah, but no, my my issue wasn't with that. My issue is not with that. My issue is the fact that I, I, you're you're more angry at the white woman than the white men. It's the white men who gave no, us slavery. The white men saying. who gave us apartheid. No, the no, white men who have been responsible. No, no. For, I mean, no, no. a couple. Uh, you know, uh, I will. De- I will not deny that lots of women have had, uh, you know, Stockholm syndrome and gone along with all them. And white women deserve a lot of blame for the racism, for the Jim Crow society. It was white Christian women who upheld the apartheid structures in our country for over a century. But uh, I'm sorry, I think the guys deserve more blame than the women. Sir, I wasn't being much massage. I was saying to you, the reason the Republican Party still exists is because their backbone, their second uh, wall of keeping them in line and keeping them in business and with the ignorant BS, the white women. Then second, then third, are damn Cubans. Okay. They come to America with shit, and they turn around and for Republicans, but they never talk about Jimmy Carter. My whole point was, I know terrific white women just like I know terrific Cubans. I just, I don't like lumping entire groups of people together like that. Well, I'm not lumping, but if you, we're not going to go into numbers. All right. It's all bullshit with these people. So, man. Lewis, so there's I, nothing Lewis, I is there. There's actually nothing I said that you're going to. First liberated. All right. Well, I... was liberated. Do you know that England was with them? As soon as they found out it was a black country trying to liberate, that you know, and he went right against Haiti. I, Fuck them all. I man. know, That's but with Haiti, you got to fool them as being white. Well, listen, I'm happy to talk about Haiti and the the incredible story of Haitian liberation, but again, I I don't really see what I did uh, to praise the royal family more than they deserved. I'm all for calling out all the sins, but I don't believe any of us are responsible for the sins of our ancestors. I think that the queen should have done a lot more to make amends uh, and apologizing, but that's just how it is. We, I want to know what you guys think. 866-997-4748. Quick break. We'll be right back. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back. In the U.S., a heat wave on the West Coast has sent the temperatures soaring above 110 degrees Fahrenheit in recent days. 100 million Americans suffered through a big heat wave this summer. Floods have ravaged parts of Kentucky and Missouri. In the spring, we saw heavy rainfall causing floods and mudslides in South Africa that killed 45 people. Severe drought struck India this summer and reduced the country's food exports. A huge heat wave in China dried up rivers. Another heat wave in Europe sent temperatures in the UK to a record 104 degrees Fahrenheit. We are seeing World War II sunken ships being exposed in dried up rivers. And of course, the wildfires in Europe have burned nearly three times as much land this year as in the normal 2006 to 2021 average. Uh, Heat waves in the US, floods in Asia, wildfires in Europe. Summer 2022 has shown the climate crisis has made extreme weather a part of what we call normal life. And look at Pakistan. Floods have submerged more than a third of the country and killed over a thousand people. And this is what we'll see with climate change. Poorer countries like Pakistan that have contributed less to climate change because they've emitted fewer greenhouse gas emissions than wealthier nations will still suffer the worst consequences of global warming. And this is not going to change. There is no debate on this. It is inevitable. So Gaia Vince is our guest, freelance British environmental journalist, broadcaster. She writes for The Guardian and the Small Planet column for BBC Online. Her books include Adventures in the Anthropocene, A Journey into the Heart of the Planet We Made, and Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. She won the Royal Society Winston Prize for Science Books. And her new book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World, urgently reminds us that there is no place on this planet that will be unaffected by climate change. Everywhere will undergo some kind of transformation in response to changes in our climate. But what if migration isn't actually a problem, but should be viewed as a solution and an ancient one at that? It's a fascinating book that is the rarest book about climate science. It filled me with as much hope as it did terror. Guy events. Welcome. Oh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you, John. Thank you for joining us from uh, across the pond. Before we even dive in, how are you and your family doing in this not yet post-COVID time? Well, you know, you, you listed what really amounts to a different world, doesn't it? Having back-to-back disasters happening all across the globe. And remember, of course, that we are all networked. We are globalized. We Our economies are all tied to each other's. Our food supply depends on places far away from us. And these continual shocks, wherever they are, they affect us. They affect our prices. They affect um, where we can travel to. And quite often, they also affect our lives. You know, people have died in rich countries as well as poor countries um, because of climate change. And that it's a different world. It's a different world we're entering now. And it's, it's only going to get worse. And so many similarities we've witnessed between the climate disaster and COVID-19 from uh, the vast amounts of money being spent to doubt science to consistently marginalized peoples always bearing the brunt and the worst of the suffering. Uh, I'm curious, what was it that inspired you right now specifically to write this book, though, because I've read a lot of books on the climate science problem and I've never read anything quite like yours? Well, 
It's a funny thing, isn't it? We we live through these disastrous times, and yet we do very little about it. We we're very short term in our thinking. We've been going through quite a what for me has been really quite a difficult time politically. Watching this rise of populism and um, the extreme inequality that um, that plagues our societies we've had um this this covid epidemic which you know as you mentioned there are really really strong correlations between covid and climate change in the way that we perceive the the risks in the way that we manage the risks in the way that um inequality again is it's it's they're both unequal diseases. It's the poorest that face the worst consequences of both of these disasters. Um, and they are both sol- solved through global cooperation. And yes, there were some there's some really heartening uh, examples of how global cooperation, for example, among scientists who who were able to share data, um, share technologies and techniques and come up with vaccines in this incredibly rapid time. And, you know, we are living in such a lucky time in that respect. You know, we do have the tools to solve a lot of our problems, whether it's incredibly accurate modeling forecasts for climate to uh, vaccines and medications for COVID. You know, we are really lucky. We're not living in the Middle Ages where everything is kind of in God's hands sort of thing. We, We can we do yes. have the power and the agency to do things ourselves now. If we have the will and if we care about each other, which is to say, if we care about ourselves, I mean, as you point out, um, I will quote you over the next 50 years, hotter temperatures combined with more intense humidity are set to make large swaths of the globe lethal to live in. Fleeing the tropics, the coasts, and formerly arable lands, huge populations will need to seek new homes. You will be among them or you will be receiving them. That's a line that has been quoted many times from your book. You will be among them, or you will be receiving them. As you might know, here in the U.S., if we talk about migrants at all, it's always about in the future, what's going to happen someday with climate change. As your book points out, this is already happening. It is well underway. Yeah, it it really is. Um, The... the populations that have moved from, uh, well, they made me moved internally and around Latin America, so South and Central America, uh, driven by climate change and and other things. You know, climate change is a threat multiplier. So whatever else is going on that's difficult for people to cope with in their daily lives, whether that's poor political governance, whether it's poverty, um, whether it's extreme weather, all of these things combine to make life intolerable for people. They they just can't survive there and they have to move and they are coming. Um, they are moving north. That's where people will move. They will move north. And thank goodness um, for America, because your economy would not be able to to survive without the immigrant flows that you have. That's right. So, so it's actually incredibly, incredibly useful. But we are looking at a completely unprecedented situation that is happening. But, you know, it's funny, we have all these disaster movies, we have all these um, these apocalyptic scenarios, and people can, even if we're not planning for it, people can somehow imagine these doom-laden scenarios. What I wanted yeah. to say is, you know, it doesn't have to be terrible. It doesn't have to be, you know, a dreadful, uh, hopeless disaster. We're not in a situation where there is no hope, and so if there's nothing we can do, then let's do nothing. You know, I I just, I wanted to write Nomad Century because I wanted to say we have... We have the capability now to plan our future, to manage it, to imagine a better future. And, you know, even though it's easier perhaps to imagine a disaster apocalyptic scenario because we've seen movies, we've we've looked at, um, you know, all sorts of literature and sci-fi fantasies of what a terrible situation can be. Well, why not flip that? Let's imagine a better scenario. Let's imagine a scenario where society does come together and does think about a better future. Let's visualize what these cities, these productive, clean, healthy cities of of multicultural, included populations might look like, and then let's take steps to manage it. 
because that for me is the is the way out of this complete crisis while we're also of course cutting our emissions undergoing this huge transformation in our energy systems our food systems in order to um, get to net zero and then cut below that in order to 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 produce a, a sustainable human system that fits within natural systems and that's why I think this book is so fascinating. It is science fiction turned science fact. And again, it's it's not a book about the sky is falling. This is a book about the sky's been falling for a while. There are solutions. And we've seen people fleeing drought-ridden areas in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, where farming has just become impossible. And as you cite in the book, one and a half billion, with a B, billion people on this earth will have to leave their homes by 2050 and that number will double to 3 billion by 2070. I know that most of the displaced will come from the global south and the tropics and the coasts, but as you point out, as, as horrific as it is to think about the wildfires and the extreme heat and the drought and the flooding, this kind of global migration is nothing new for our species. I was really comforted by how deeply you go into the book, how migration has always been an important survival tool for us bipeds. Yeah, it's it's part of who we are. It's part of what's made us. You know, migration really has made us. We are another ape species, essentially, that emerged in Africa. But unlike our tropical cousins, we have left that ecological niche. We have migrated and colonized habitats from the frozen Arctic to the deserts to um, marshlands to oceans. We've really gone everywhere. We've even gone to the moon, for goodness sake. And we've done that because we have we have special social and technological tools. We are hypersocial. We are super cooperators. And we rely on these networks that we form with complete strangers to, to ease our journey across sort of the deserts of um, uh, resource depletion and, and these unknown landscapes. We rely on strangers to trade with, to um, to show us the ways of um, building houses there, of hunting in, in this particular landscape and really making our way across the entire globe. And we also rely on our secondary migrations. And what I mean by that is that we don't just move ourselves, we also move the stuff that we need, our resources. Ah. Yeah, so so we we developed the technology, for example, to carry water with us, which meant that we could move much further away from water sources. You know, most mammals of our size can't can't go too far away from water because they would they would die. But we ca- carry bladders full of water, so we can do that. We carry our tools with us so we can make fire wherever we want to go. We carry things like shell beads, which we can trade with other tribes for food if we need it. And over the millennia, over the hundreds of thousands of years that humans have been around, we have honed those tools to such a degree that we don't realize now that we're using, you know, we're using this secondary migration to such an extent that we think of ourselves as sedentary. You know, I'm sitting mm-hmm. here um, with entirely reliant on a network, a global network of people who move around themselves and who move all the resources to me. You know, I, I haven't produced anything I rely on from this little square footage that I'm sitting on. None of the food, none of the uh, tools, none of the clothes I'm wearing, nothing. It's all come from this sort of networked chain of super cooperators to me. And, and we, we rely on that. And that's uh, these tools have made us this globally dominant species where we now, we now rule the earth and we, we rule it to such an extent that we have changed our climate but that we also have the tools and abilities to change it for our own benefit. Well, that's, I think, what I love about the book is it shows how the science and, and, and the economics really align with the basic morality here. Um, let, let's, let's, let's go deeper, because I know that in the book you go through the large parts of our Earth that will not be habitable in the second half of the 20th 
21st century, but what are some of the places on our planet that will be habitable? Where, where do we need to start thinking about building new megacities for all of our fellow humans that are definitely going to be displaced? Right. So, so if you do look at the globe, um, it's, it's obvious immediately that a lot of the continents are sort of ice cream cone shaped. So they taper at the bottom. So there isn't much land um, in the far south. There are places like Patagonia and New Zealand, possibly parts of um, Antarctica. But most of the land is in the far north. So when this huge belt of unlivability grows from the equator north and, and really takes in that um, that tropical belt and, and, and also the, uh, a lot of the coastlines will be eroding. And, and remember, most of our cities are, are based on coastlines or, or river deltas. Historically, that they're the most productive places to put a city. Um, but that makes them extremely vulnerable. So a lot of these places will have to move and the, the large populations will be heading north. And in the north, Although nowhere on Earth will be uh, unaffected by climate change and extreme events, you know, Canada experienced temperatures of above 50 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, I'm afraid, but um, <laughs> very, it's very hot it's a lot. Yes. <laughs> last year. So, um, you know, nowhere is unaffected by these extreme conditions, but, but they will, they, the far north is less, um, it, it's more livable, it's more inhabitable. The temperatures there will um, will be in in the range that we can adapt to, and crucially, also a lot of these northern um, economies uh, they have stronger institutions, they have they they're wealthier generally, so they ha they're much more resilient and much more able to adapt to um, the conditions we're expecting. And you know, if you look at our planet from space, you can see a lot of these changes are already happening. The Arctic is noticeably greening now. That's right. Um, the growing the growing seasons are expanding. People, uh, farmers in Greenland, um, are growing new varieties of crop for longer. Um, the same is true in Iceland. We we already see this um, rapid shrinkage of um, Arctic ice. We're going to see the North the North Sea Passage. This this uh, this this um, oceanic uh, trade link open between um, between uh, East Asia and the Americas soon, uh, which which will it will make it a, a sort of hub. The Arctic will become a hub of activity um, as the temperatures increase there. So existing cities will expand, like places that are sort of towns, really, like Churchill, right. Manitoba in, in, in Canada. They will expand and, and uh, become much, uh, much, they'll have much larger populations, but also entirely new cities will have to be built. And yeah. they will be built like, the settlements in the United States were built before before the United States was a United States by yeah. by migrants who arrive. And um, hopefully my my plan, my ambition is that um, they will be helped by a sort of global cooperate cooperative union, which which really um, helps direct people to places that can um, accommodate them and um, helps with uh, the easing of funds. And uh, th this is not this is not a sort of a reeling from crisis to crisis, but a managed relocation of people yes. while the rest of the world is restored. Yes. And that's, I think, why it's the first hopeful book of its kind. I mean, we're, we're talking about Canada. We're talking about Northern Europe and Russia as a place where people will have to go live. We're, we're talking about Greenland once their ice sheet completely melts, right? Yeah. I mean, these places are already changing. Um, there is a lot of potential for, for new populations to go there and for populations to expand. I mean, Canada has already got a national plan to increase its population um, by a factor of three, yeah. you know, through immigration. Um, I mean, that will that will likely have to go up, but other countries will also need to be part of this. I mean, there's, a, there's an absolute to. demographic crisis affecting the North. We're not having enough babies in most nations um, in the Northern Hemisphere. 
And that's that's a real problem. I mean, who's going to look after this aging population? Who are the workers going to be? Well, they're it's going amazing to, to be think about that. To, to think of migrants from climate change possibly being the solution to a host of other man-made problems. I, 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 I know that our, our best hope lies in this kind of cooperation with other folks. And I know that all the data we have shows that bringing immigrants to your country does bring crime rates down here in the U.S. And I say this all the time, uh, both undocumented and documented immigrants commit crimes at a much lower rate than native born Americans. And the data is proven. It it doesn't hurt the economy. It boosts an economy, uh, especially in a country like ours, where our life expectancy has now gone down a couple of years because of COVID. This is exactly the sort of thing our economy needs. But as you address in the book, John, thank you so much for saying this, because this is actually something something that um, has, you know, we have allowed the narrative around migration to become toxic over oh, yeah. the last uh, last few decades we've allowed this this false narrative which has been driven by um, populist governments and populist leaders and nationalists to go largely unchallenged and um, that is an abdication of responsibility for our our society's future as well as you know it's it's it's, it's obviously immoral but yes. Economically, it's also incredibly foolish because because even though leaders talk the talk on um, uh, on their anti migration uh, uh, tirades, fear mongering, xenophobic yeah, nonsense, fear mongerings, yeah. and yes, which 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 builds this um, this prejudiced um, attitude, actually. Even when they're doing that in public, in private, they are quite often making contingencies to bring in more migrants because they know, they know that our economies cannot survive without them. So um, it's incredibly hypocritical. I mean, if you think of leaders um, that have been particularly xenophobic, if you think of, um, say, Trump, Donald Trump, who, you know, he is the product of migration in that his parents um, his life partner is a migrant. You know, yes. it's it, it is transparent. It's transparent. Um, yeah. This whole thing, but um, but these are the facts. Migration is actually economically very helpful. We do rely on immigrants um, to enlarge our enlarge our co- economies. Well, you say. Early on in the book, I'll quote you, we already know which communities will need to relocate by 2050. Um, My math's not great, but I think that's 28 years from now. So uh, let me ask, I mean, we already know who needs to move and when will they? Yeah, so it's 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 not that long away. Um, It's the lifespan of most mortgages. Um, If you think 28 years before us, uh, let me think. So uh, 1992, that was uh, Billy Ray Cyrus, Achy Breaky Heart. It oh, wasn't yeah. that long ago, right? So we haven't got That's that right. long. We haven't got that long um, uh, to start thinking about this and, and actually acting on it. So communities in the US, for example, think of New Orleans. It's it's time is limited. Unfortunately, it's a beautiful, you know, culturally important um, it's an important trading city as well. On on you know on a, it's a really important port city. Its days are numbered. You know how many times can it be flooded before people just you know can't I afford know. to stay there? Um, know. You know there's, there's places people are still building and they're still permit permitted to build, which is the shocking thing because people make stupid short term. Um, moves for all sorts of reasons, you know, because it's because of emotional ties, family ties, because they like the warmth and the weather. They're moving into fire risk zones um, in California. They're getting building permits to build there. Crazy. They're moving to um, Florida Keys, which is which is pretty much underwater for large parts of, of the year now. They're moving to all sorts of crazy things. And, you know, the the fault and the blame is not on these people. It's on the very poor regulations that are allowing this to happen. Because yes. when we make stupid decisions, you know, when we're, you know, 19, 20, and we think, oh, I'm going to take up cigarette smoking because I can't <laughs> imagine myself as an old person with terrible lung cancer dying in front of my 
um, grandchildren. You know, I'm a young, cool person. Yeah, That's never going to exactly. happen to me. We rely on, you know, government regulations to limit our exposure to these things. Well, it's not happening. You know, our governments, our leaders are not taking this enormous threat seriously. They are not, you know, we need to we need to sit up and we need to look head on at what we're facing because it is a really seriously different world over the next coming decades. And we need to start talking about really what our options are because we do still have options. But if we don't, if nobody is honest about what this transformation is going to need, you know, by 2050, we're supposed to have reached net zero. Yeah, Does, I just... You know, have you heard a serious discussion from leaders about what that actually entails to get there? Because to get there is just part of the job. We then need to cut below, you know, right. by pulling yeah. carbon out. You know, we've got a really, really big upheaval on our hands over the coming decades. Oh, and absolutely. there are places, you know, that will not be able to adapt. New Orleans is one, you know, they, they won't be able to adapt. The people will have to move. How are we going to deal with that? And if you, well, it's not palatable to you to allow them to move into your city and your nation, um, or, or whatever, then what's the alternative plan, you know? Because we need to start talking about this. Oh, we have that in America. We have the plan. It's uh, uh, Gen Z will fix everything one day. We, we've got it all figured out. Top guys have said, let Gen Z fix it. And that's pretty much how our government and business are mostly conducting themselves. We did have a pretty good uh, uh, stimulus last month about some money for climate prep. But as you know, it's always too little too late. And and that's why I'd like to just mention that in the last chapter of your book, it's called Restoration. You go into some strategies um, to ameliorate the damage from climate change, like more seagrasses, mangroves, cloud seeding, which I didn't know much about having white roofs. I mean, what should we be doing as citizens waiting for our government to do something uh, to address the crisis right now? Yeah, well, First of all, vote for a government that takes this seriously. I mean, you you. you have Thank in you. the US um, a government that is taking things a lot more seriously than um, than say previously. Um, <laughs> you know, yes. um, so so voting is so important um, because this is not a, pro a problem that can be solved at the individual level at all. This is a systemic problem that needs to be solved at uh, leadership level, at government level, and um, at a global level. Yes. But it is going to involve huge um, transformation of our energy systems, of the way we make and produce and eat food, um, the way we uh, design our cities, the materials we use, all of these things. And yes, you know, you do have some personal decisions to make. So when you make a decision, for example, about where you're going to live, consider consider the climate modelling for that place and what buildings, what um, building materials it's made from, you know, is it designed for Holocene conditions of the 20th century or is it designed for the Anthropocene, which we are now in entering and which will become much, much more severe? And, you know, we are, we are facing some really hard choices but we also have ways of managing it. So, um, you know, we we might decide to follow my my plan in this, which is that we we have a paradigm shift in the way that we understand uh, yes. how people live on the land, on this globally shared space that we inhabit, and where the safe places are, and where the food can be produced, and where the energy can be produced, and think about it from um, the physics and biology of the planet rather than uh, invented uh, geopolitical game playing from the last uh, the last century or so. Um, the book is. We might yeah, decide ahead. that that's, you know, unpalatable and we don't want to accommodate lots of migrants. Well, what are the alternatives? Is it that we keep the temperature of the planet down through geoengineering, through reflecting back heat? That's not an easy decision either. That also involves global cooperation, negotiation, um, deciding exactly how that could work. We don't know that it would work and that it would be affordable or the energy uh, would be acceptable. 
you know, we might decide, okay, so nobody is allowed to use fossil fuels anymore. Well, that's an absolutely enormous um, energy shock, and uh, that's a social shock across the world as well. None of these, none of these solutions are easy at all, and we will probably come to some sort of um, combination of bits of all of these tools. But until we start talking about what the options are, and then mm-hmm. planning some sort of management for them, where where you know people decide what they want for a future. We're not even starting. We're just we're just reacting to each crisis, each disaster, which is going to get worse and worse. And at that point, we can't do anything about it. It's happened, and we're reacting to it. Right now, we can. We can make choices. We can build better uh, cities. We can. And again, it's so rare for me to read a book that is so full of practical solutions, or at least practical means of adaptability as yours. It, it, it is terrible. It is scary. But what you have outlined in this book are so many ways we can make it not only better than we fear, but we can turn some of these disasters to the advantage economically and socially of so many countries. It's an essential read for anyone who cares about this issue or cares about science. The book is Nomad Century, How Climate migration will reshape our world. Guy Vince, what a pleasure having you. Thank you for joining us uh, across the ocean. And please uh, come back anytime. I'd love to go even deeper with you. Oh, John, it really has been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. And we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Ralph in Connecticut. Hi, John. Hi. Hey, you know, with, with uh, the, the uh, Queen Diane and now Charles is the king, I thought of Joan Rivers because she was tight with the prince who's now the king. She would have gotten such a big, I uh, wish she was still alive, in other words. Me too. She would have gotten such a big kick out of this. And then, you know, I'd be very happy for her, but also it would please millions because she would go on Howard Stern and talk about their friendship. And, yeah. you know, they, they used to really hang together. So yeah, but that's, that's before, I mean, but she was also pretty brutal on Camilla, wasn't she? I seem to remember Joan uh, was pretty harsh on Camilla. Well, perhaps, but, um, I, I, um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you about that. But, uh, no worries. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, yeah, I love Joan. I, I Joan was good to me. Joan was so good to me and I worked with her and I loved her and I still love her. And I still think she's an underrated comic. She, I, I loved her too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, uh, but that was it. That was, that was, I uh, just wanted to pass that. Uh, I love it. On. Thank you so much, Ralph. I appreciate it. Have a great weekend. I want to play a little bit more because you'll, this will make you happy. This is a, a really, really satisfying dig at the GOP. Here's Joe Biden again, talking to the DNC retreat, talking about how all these Republicans in Congress who don't have a problem taking credit for the very policies they cry about and vote against. A big reason for all this is the American Rescue Plan that I signed shortly after he took office with only Democratic votes because not a single Republican, not a single one, House or Senate, voted for that legislation. 
We also passed once in a generation investment in our nation's roads, highways, bridges, railroads, ports, airports, water systems, high-speed internet. We got a little help from Republicans, but not a lot, but enough to get it passed. But the truth is, there are a lot more Republicans taking credit for that bill than we actually voted for it. Yep. I see them out there, and now we're going to build this new bridge here. We're all for it. And by the way, this new road, and we're going to have an internet that's going to be all the way. I love them, man. They ain't got no shame. They don't have any shame. <laughs> I like the new Biden. I'm sorry. I like kicking ass, taking names, and more relaxed Joe Biden. I went, friends, to D.C. a couple of months ago to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Biden was great. All these jackasses talking about dementia, they've never actually heard the guy speak off the cuff. And yes, I know he's old. And yes, I know he has a stammer. So sometimes he he, he halts in his speech. But when he's relaxed, man, give credit where it's due. He's good. Hear that? That's the sound of change being cooked up in our schools. Each day, school food professionals throughout California are working to make better meals for our kids, one tray at a time. These meal planning, sauce stirring, taste bud training professionals are making food for students from kindergarten to high school using fresher ingredients and flavors kids love. The secret ingredient to better school food in California? The dedicated professionals who are improving it every day. Learn more about how they're cooking up change at schoolfoodpros.org. Grant provided by California Community College's Chancellor's Office.